Welcome to the first instalment of 2022 of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Connorline. We're starting the year with a discussion with Isabel Carlyle. Isabel is the director of the Bioregional Learning Centre in Devon in the UK, which is working on addressing whole systems change towards sustainability at the regional level, linking grassroots innovation to existing political and economic structures. Caroline and David Somek of the EHFF talked to Isabel about different aspects of her work and common ground with the work of FASTA and the EHFF. I started out by asking Isabel to say a few words about how she came to be involved in bioregionalism. That's a very good question. When people ask me about my career, I sometimes say say that I started about 350,000 years ago and I'm now operating at some point in the future. So I came to do my work through, I suppose, a fascination with the material world and how humans have been shaped by the world and shaped the world around them and this relationship between culture and action. And I started off by being an archaeologist, which I trained for at university, and then graduated, in a sense, from there once I left university, into working um, at an organisation called the Warburg Institute in London. It's all about survival of the antique into the Renaissance. And that was looking at culture as a whole sweep of interplaying activities from architecture to philosophy to magic to sculpture. And I think that really shaped my understanding of how to engage or how humans have always engaged with the material world. And then from there, I moved into um, the world of art and um, the London art world, art criticism, curating exhibitions and writing about exhibitions. So again, kind of thinking about how humans look at the past and how they understand the mindsets of the creators of works of art in terms of cultural memory and cultural, yeah, what I would call kind of cosmologies in a way, like how did people's minds work back then? Why did medieval um, painters paint the way they did? But really when I, um, I left the art world in about 2002, having worked at the Royal Academy as an exhibitions curator, and because, or partly because, I had worked as an archaeologist in Jerusalem and had seen the rise of Al-Qaeda in North Africa. I set up something called the Festival of Muslim Cultures that happened all through 2006, all through um, Great Britain, and then um, put that to bed in 2007, and then really fell into this world of of climate change, having seen Al Gore's film Inconvenient Truth and connecting up with um, other people in London where I was living at that time, going to lectures. I mean, London is full of wonderful free lectures that you can go to at the LSE or the Wellcome Institute or wherever. And really was starting to get to grips with the, all the issues that we're facing now that then seemed slightly less urgent, but everything to do with kind of melting glaciers and the need for food security and how we plan um, our energy supplies for the future and so on. I landed in that world and just kind of devoured it. And then came down here to Devon in 2010 and started working for Transition Network, which is the organization that um, is the umbrella organization for the transition movement, 
but was getting more and more interested about how you would do change at system scale and how you would do it across the whole region. So that's really um, how I came to be doing the work I'm do doing now with the Bioregional Learning Centre that I and two colleagues set up five years ago, which is all about um, place-based systemic change for climate resilience. That's quite an interesting path. It's fascinating that you have such a rich background in the arts and then of climate, it's such a central part of your life and bioregionalism. And the website of your organization, the Bioregional Learning Center says that working at the scale of the bioregion, how human societies have organized themselves for millennia, we can see the many ecosystems and human systems alive within our place. So could you just explain what the scale of the bioregion is and why that's so important for your organization? We wanted a scale to work at that was human scale. I mean, literally as simple as saying, we would like to be able to go out for a lunchtime meeting, be back in our beds by the evening, or even by tea time perhaps. So our bioregion has about 538,000 people in it. And it, you can drive across it in around two hours in any direction. Um, we're a total of 712 square miles. So we're not enormous. Um, but we think bioregions are very good scale for human organizing. And in order to kind of work into that reality, we can also point to prehistory and early Homo sapiens and how they existed at bioregional scale. And of course, bioregions exist at different scales. So the Cascadia bioregion in the Pacific Northwest of the USA and reaching up into Canada a bit as well is enormous because it's based around the Cascade Mountains, but a bioregion can also be very small. It could be just a river valley. But we've chosen a scale which is bounded by water. So when you think of bioregions, they have, um, what distinguishes them is that they have a kind of geographical, geological coherence. So if you were to kind of create kind of a, a picture of the essence of your bioregion, you'd start with the geology and you'd kind of build up layers of of geography and land type and rainfall and land use. And then you look at the social history and the cultural history and, and all of that and kind of build it up to kind of make sure that there was this kind of consonance between the layers. And it's this consonance or coherence that we're looking for, this distinctiveness of place. And because belonging is such an important element of the work that we do, because we recognize that change is simply not possible unless you care about the thing that you're trying to save or to make better or whatever, however you want to describe that. This kind of sense of belonging we feel is really important. And I think it gets lost when you're simply talking about a region that has political boundaries rather than geographical boundaries. That's really interesting. It sounds as though you can have you could have bioregions that are nested within larger bioregions. Is that right? You absolutely can. And in fact, we work at many different scales. So at the moment, we've got a project on our river, the River Dart. We're working in the Dart catchment on a project that's all about saving water. But we also work at the scale of South Devon. So the Dart is one of the rivers in South Devon. We've got at least five rivers that flow down from Dartmoor to the sea southwards. And for the, um, the Devon Donut work, the Donut Economics work, we've been working at the scale of the whole county of Devon. Mm. So this ability to kind of shift scales is something that we grappled with to start with, but um, 
But now it seems completely natural that for different purposes, you work at different scales. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. And and you mentioned the donut there. Um, I think a lot of our listeners will know what the donut is. Because if, you, if you're wondering what it is and you're listening, you can just look up donut economics online and you find it. Is, is there a particular reason why you focused on a slightly larger region for the donut rather than just say totness or something like that? Yes, there is a very good reason. So by Regional Learning Centre, we knew that we needed some kind of baseline for our work. We knew that we needed to work with data both um, quantitative data, which we call hard data, and narrative data or soft data, in order to know what we were working from and what we wanted to go towards. So in fact, we did, um, we're just looking at this this morning, we did an analysis about three years ago of different ways of um, framing um, an economic and ecological assessment. We're very keen that we wanted to do both at the same time. It wasn't enough just to have an an economic assessment. We also needed to understand the natural environment that this economy was situated in at the same time. So we looked at um, the sustainable development goals. We looked at the Scottish donut, which four years ago, we only really had the Scottish donut to go on here in this country. And then we also looked at um, thriving cities index. Oh, yes, yes. And we compared them all and we kind of parked it And then there was uh, an event that happened online in Devon back in July of 2020 called Regenerate Devon. And Kate Rayworth, who is the inventor, if you like, the kind of the source and the imagination for donut economics, sent a message in the form of a recorded video to the summit. And it was shown there. And uh, we'd never seen a chat go on fire in the way that he went on fire when Kate's video was playing and so many people were saying we've just got to do this in Devon let's make it happen and so um, at the Bioregional Learning Centre we thought well that's very interesting that there's energy for doing this at Devon wide scale so we held back for a couple of months but then because nobody else was stepping forward we stepped forward and we said we would convene a collective in Devon in order to kind of think through how to make the Devon Donut And that um, is a project that we worked on from October 2020 to November of 2021. And within that year, we created the interactive donut that we'd set out to create um, with a lot of kind of consulting with experts and data crunching and thinking about domains and indicators and twin track pathways to action. So if anyone's interested in that, you can go to devondonut.org to see our work. And you also on your website mentioned the importance of common pool resource management. Could you say just a few words about what that is and why it's emphasised by the centre? We emphasise it because the challenges we're facing now because of climate change and loss of biodiversity and all these kind of connected, uh, wicked problems cannot be solved by so-called experts, whether those are scientific experts or people working in um, big businesses like water companies, they can't be solved on their own. We've got to the point where the issues that we're facing are large and systemic, and we need everybody within those systems to address them together. So one of our key um, purposes of the Bioregional Learning Center is to give a civil society a voice in this work that we're doing in Devon. Um, So when we talk about common pool resources, this is based on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, which I'm sure a lot of people will already know. 
and how work on common pool resource management. So when we started working at bioregional scale, we already had some experience of working in what's called the South Devon Catchments Partnership. So this is something that was set up through the Water Framework Directive that came out of the EU in the year 2000 and in this country is managed by DEFRA. So we were already working with water at system scale and pretty much the scale of South Devon, in fact, as well. And so we had already been thinking into these issues around how do you engage civil society or communities in thinking about source to sea catchment man management. And we were also confronted with um, the challenges that a lot of water companies were facing or the environment agency was facing as well about working at system scale and working with interlocking systems. So we decided to, uh, to design into that. I and my colleague Jane are both designers with different kinds of design backgrounds. And doing that piece of design, thinking about how do we bring civil society into thinking about water in a new way. So not just thinking about water as consumers or people who pay bills to the water company, but how do we flip that relationship between civil society and water in such a way that we feel that we are actually stewards of the water, knowing that our water company can't solve all the problems that we throw at it and all the stuff that we put down the drains. It can't extract all the toxins that go into the sewage. Um, it can't extract them both in order to put them back into the river or to get clean water out of the river for drinking water. And some things simply can't be removed. They're everlasting toxins, they're prescription medicines and so on that can't be removed. And so we um, put our minds towards that and we came up with this idea of creating a charter for our river, which gave rights to the river and it gave a role to the local communities along the river to be the stewards or the keepers of the river. And this is a project that we're still working into. We have created a charter for one stretch of our river. We now have um, ambassadors going up and down the river, um, carrying the charter with them. One of these projects is uh, a kind of wild church pilgrimage, which is carrying the, the river charter downstream to different churches in the communities along the Dart. And this year we'll be going upstream to different churches. Alongside that, we've got a project called Voices of the Dart, which is asking if water could speak, what would it say? And with funding from our local water company, Southwest Water, we have designed workshops for communities up and down the Dart, which are really about, um, about climate change, the need to save water, not use so much water. But it's also, as well as being about data and climate change, it's about how do we uh, express this connection, this deep visceral connection that we as humans have to water. And again, it comes back to the sense of belonging and caring. And um, we're gonna be asking people in the workshops, if water could speak, what would it say? What words would you give that? And we're going to take all these words and take them to a river council that will happen after the workshops, which we gather everybody together up and down our river, mm. people from Southwest Water, the Environment Agency, the South Devon Catchments Partnership, the communities and so on. And there'll be a public performance of all of the voices. But we're also very keen to initiate a council in which civil society has a say alongside all the other major stakeholders. Are there other projects as well along those lines, or is that your main focus at the moment? Well, Voice of the Dart is our main focus, but we're also 
reflecting on all the Devon Donut work and how we take that forward. We're just in the process of doing a big survey of all the 170 people who participated in the making of the Devon Donut as part of the collective, many of whom have networks sitting behind them. So they're like key network nodes in Devon. And uh, we're getting some very interesting replies as to where they think we should put our energies next. And we're also talking to Exeter University about working with them on the data side. Um, so is this kind of a pause and reflection moment for us on that score? And it's really about thinking forward. How do we look beyond the donut into putting into action all the 44 pathways to action that we now have stacked up in the donut? And um, these are all, we've got 44 projects now. We clearly can't do them on our own. And so it's all about collaboration and pulling lots of different bodies together and um, thinking about a common vision and common purpose and gathering collective will. So that's where you find us right now. Mm. Yes, that kind of links in with uh, my next question, which was how you see your regional work interacting with the broader economic dynamics or like the broader authorities for larger areas. And it sounds like you have a lot of links already. Is there anything else you'd like to elaborate about that? How what you're doing locally might interact with what's happening in other regions or nationally or even globally? Yes, no, that's a lovely question. We do have lots of connections. We've got lots of connections in Devon. We have got some connections in the UK. We've actually got more international connections. So there's a, a nascent organization which has been going for about two years now called the Regenerative Communities Network, which is working bi-regionally in different places around the world. It's got a lot of um, members in South America, for instance. And we are a community practice. We share what we're doing. We're asking all sorts of kind of questions about the challenges we find about working at this scale. And one of the questions is about governance, kind of the, what, what does the governance of a bi-region look like? How does it interface with local governance? And when it comes to funding as well, we're asking about a lot of the funding that's coming down the line. For instance, the $130 trillion that Mark Carney announced at the um, COP26 summit in Glasgow. They're pondering how to allocate that. What are the evaluation mechanisms for distributing that money? And one of the challenges we find, uh, those of us who are kind of working at grassroots scale, is that we won't have access to that funding unless we can aggregate what we're doing. And this kind of theme of aggregation keeps keeps popping up. There's a scale question. Governments, big governments think big and big funds think big about how to allocate funding. How do you aggregate in order to be able to, to meet that? But also within Devon, we also have this need to kind of aggregate and join up everything from whether it's patches of land in order to boost biodiversity. So biodiversity isn't simply happening in small bits of a jigsaw but we're joining the jigsaw up. So you can actually get kind of landscape scale strategies for managing for biodiversity. So of course, biodiversity recognizes, doesn't recognize hedges or ownership boundaries or anything like that. So we need it in order to let it flourish. We need to be able to take down a lot of these fences. And then I think you'll know from your work at FASTA about things like participatory budgeting, and community wealth building and all of that and this kind of the space the bi-regional learning center occupies is what we call the muddy middle 
So it's kind of between these things. It's between the grassroots and big government and policymaking. And this kind of acting as a bridge between, it's partly, of course, just about building relationships, but it's also about language and it's about ways in which we think. And we know there are a lot of people in government, you know, at county council level or national level, who are thinking differently. And also, of course, in, in our big water companies, for instance, in Southwest Water or in, in our local hospitals, who are keen to think differently, but find themselves caught in an existing system, which is very resistant to change. And so finding ways in which we can get some wiggle room in order to show how to do things differently is um, part of our remit. And having friends who in the work who are doing it, you know, whether it's in India or South America or in this country is really important. And I'm sure you find that as well, this need to kind of just to connect up and link and know that you're not alone. Absolutely, yes, yes. And I don't know whether your organization is part of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, but EHFF and FASTA are both in, in that. And that's actually a very nice from the point of view of being a global network with loads of people all over the world working in similar way with a similar kind of goal. And it is, it is very reassuring to have that support sometimes. David, have you got some questions as well? You've given me a very nice introduction into the conversation by bringing up the, uh, the Irish hub for, for WHEEL, which you and I are part of the project group. And Isabel, I'm delighted to hear in more detail uh, what you're doing. It, hugely impressive, um, the work you've been doing. But it's for me, it's really valuable because there are lessons to be learnt from the way you're approaching things because there are parallel tracks, I think. I feel if you think of uh, what the overall vision would be uh, of what's going on here, I mean, we want to change society for the better, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, that society, there are so many things that are not working as they should and looking to see a society which serves the majority <laughs> rather than a privileged minority in terms of power and so forth. Having made that little speech, um, what I'm really interested in is the parallels. There are two major projects that my organisation is involved in. One is about transformation of the health ecosystem and we're at a very early stage of that project but in parallel with that and maybe overlapping is that um, this we all hub in Ireland uh, has a lot of common issues that uh, would help us learn from you I think to move forward I think that there's a key issue about in you know, that thing about the muddy in between, I love, because I think it is the sort of positioning that a wheel hub is envisaged to be anyway. But there's, there's a particular issue about engaging the, the stakeholders. I think you've shown the way in some ways. We've started down a similar path, but we're a fair way behind you. Uh, so I think that just for me, it's a, a revelation to hear in more detail what you've been doing, because it, it strikes so many chords, I think, for us as to how we might go ahead and and deal with our project. And I suppose, in a sense, what you said about the global network, you know, the regenerative, is again, it's the same concept, isn't it, that there are all kinds of activities going on, which are sub-government level, uh, really community-led, with uh, people with specialist knowledge engaging with local issues, and then how to 
bring all of those together to get impact, I think, probably is, is fascinating as well. That's lovely that you said that. And of course, we'd be very happy to work with you and share what we're doing. I think this is an extraordinary moment of experimentation. Mm. Um, as things appear to be falling apart. On the one hand, there's a lot of fear around. I think on the other hand, there's a lot of creativity. And I see this kind of ferment of ideas happening all over the world. Mm. And I'm ast astonished at how quickly new combinations of ideas are emerging into kind of new forms and the willingness of people to share as well. I sometimes wish I'd lived through the Enlightenment and wonder what that was like. But I think it feels to me a bit like that. And also this sense of kind of healthy competition. So having been in the art world for a long time and having um, clocked that there are kind of, there are certain moments in art history, particularly in the West. I mean, the Renaissance, for instance, in Florence in the 15th century and earlier, but also Paris around 1900 when you get the, the Cubists and all of that happening. Yeah. I think there are moments when you get a cultural congregation of extraordinary activity, when a lot of minds come together and they help each other, they, they try and pull each other down, they compete with each other. But ultimately, it's a kind of, it's a spur to, to moving up a level. And I think that's probably where we find ourselves now, this kind of being spurred to move up a level. Well, you know, I love that comment you made about the Renaissance because we've had very similar thoughts. And it's really about, we talk about the climate emergency, but really the world is in crisis. And in those circumstances often is the opportunity. People have talked about the pandemic having that thing, but it's much wider than the pandemic. It's already there, the whole thing that you're talking about, and we totally agree with. And it will be fascinating to look back <laughs> you know, some years on to see whether how this developed. But I think it's a huge opportunity. It's interesting you were making the point about how things are being adopted. Of course, you have to admit for all its dangers and pitfalls, the internet and, and digital communication has facilitated that, just as it's facilitated some terrible things as well. And fascinating. So it is a kind of new renaissance in a way, potentially, isn't it? Yes, I certainly believe that. And I would not be able to talk to my colleagues in South America or wherever without this amazing internet and all kinds of communications. That we now use. As you know, our hub in Ireland for the we all is is for the whole of Ireland, the north and the south. And oh. personally, I'm not at all. I have no political interest. I'm very neutral politically. So I'm I'm kind of I've, I'm conscious of wanting to not tread on anyone's toes with this idea of the whole island. But for me, a big part of it is actually the well, the ecosystem aspect of it. The fact that as a biological or an ecosystem, it's kind of makes sense to think on the island level as well as on smaller levels. So I find the bioregional model very, very important and interesting in that respect because there's no, there's no politics there. It's just about rivers, as you say, and the life, the habitats, you know, and how they're all interacting with each other. So uh, I just find that very helpful. And the idea that you can nest different bioregions within a bigger one, I think that's really relevant. And, and could be really helpful to us as well. Well, there's no doubt that Ireland is a bioregion. Islands are clear bioregions. Bi it's much easier when you've got a peninsula or an island to name it a bioregion. Yes. <laughs> you've got a piece of land which is kind of a bit landlocked or it's kind of different. We've got the whole UK bioregional community of practice 
a very lively community practice that meets once a month. And one of the bioregions is the Clyde bioregion. And that really is defined by water because most mm. of it is sea. So mm. you've got the Mull of Kintyre all the way across to Glasgow being part of the Clyde bioregion. Well, and, yeah. Um, yeah. I've lived on the Isle of Wight for 25 years, having spent a lot of working time in London previously. I'd love it if we could have, there are some seeds of it, I think, green shoots on the island, but not really anything properly developed. It's a lovely opportunity maybe sometime <laughs> in the future. Yeah, I was thinking about that, David, about where you live and how that could be a great bioregion. That's another project down the, down the road. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> that was Isabel Carlyle of the Bioregional Learning Centre in Devon in the UK, speaking with Caroline White and David Somek. Many thanks to Isabel for her participation, to my co-host on this podcast, David Somek, and to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. If you enjoyed listening, please spread the word about our series Bridging the Gaps and keep an eye out for our next instalment at the end of February. <laughs>